Hello, dear friend, and welcome. My name is Cynthia Alice Anderson, and I'm the owner and founder of the Experience of the Soul podcast channel. I have been so honored to be able to offer these programs several days a week, and these programs I know are inspiring, they are supporting, and they are uplifting your life's journey. I want to see that continue, and I honor you for being a part of making that happen. So for over five years, we've been able to offer these programs, and we want to continue to be able to offer them. So over the next 90 days, we are raising $9,000, and that's going to get us all the way through the end of the year. So I ask you to consider taking the time to support the channel that supports you. And again, our goal that we're asking you to be a part of is $9,000 in 90 days. And we look forward to hearing from you, friend. We're honored to support your journey. And we always are lifting you in prayer for God's highest and best in your life. Blessings on the journey, dear friend. And I look forward to seeing you very soon. Welcome to Healing Your Family Legacy, here on the Experience of the Soul podcast channel. Innovative, evidence-based recovery that helps to identify intergenerational trauma, allowing for freedom and embracement of the healing process. Today, Episode 62, Dance with Addiction, Part 1. And now your host, Dr. Donna Bevanley. This is Dr. Donna Bevanley helping you heal your family legacy. As all of you know who have been listening to this podcast, I've been talking about addictions for the last few sessions because uh, childhood trauma fuels addiction. And most people don't know that. Most people who are struggling with addiction don't know that. Um, you know, I, I noticed in AA when I was first in AA that People talked about their trauma and, you know, made people laugh, kind of like a flippant, oh, well, you know, I, this happened to me and, you know, ha, 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 everybody would laugh. And then they'd talk about the things they did, like on their fourth step, like, oh, I robbed a bank or, you know, I beat up my little sister or whatever. And they would just be overcome with shame and sadness and pain. And, and so, you know, as I've, as I have worked in this field, I realized that that's kind of backwards. And uh, so today, I have asked a good friend of mine, a very good friend of mine, uh, and someone who's you know been on the road to recovery with me, uh, to talk about her experiences, both as a recovering addict and and. Uh, recovering person from childhood trauma. And so I have asked her to come on today. She can use whatever she, name she wants. But um, so here she is. Tell us. Tell us about yourself. Hi, I'm Jen Wallace. I'll use my actual Okay, name. thank you, Jen. That'll make it easier for me. <laughs> my life is uh, pretty much an open book these <laughs> days. Uh yeah, so addiction, something that uh, I've had ex some experience with uh, in my in my time on this on this planet. Uh, and as I heard in a in a twelve step meeting one time, our addictions have many hosts. So that was certainly true of my experience, uh, and I can trace that 
certainly trace that back to my mm-hmm. my childhood trauma. And what I think my my overall experience with that with that trauma and how it landed on with me was that I was at war with myself. Mm-hmm. And so how those addictions manifested was anything that could take me away from myself. Like what? Uh, oh, uh, substances. Once I discovered alcohol, I was I was off to the races. That was a a substance that could put me at ease, mm-hmm. offer me some confidence. And of, of course, that also uh, reduced some of my inhibitions. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and so as I went into my teenage years and my sexuality was coming to the forefront, that was another place. I sought love and attention uh, sexually and acted out uh, accordingly, uh, typically after being fueled by mm-hmm. alcohol. And so some of those other struggles that I had in my teenage years as I've been thinking about my my story and, and sharing that with you today, that I, I just any form of self-harm that could could take me away from some of that emotional pain and move me into some physical pain to be more of my focus. I was a I was a cutter. Uh, I also would would consume food and then throw it mm-hmm. up. Uh, and uh, just exercised a lot. And when I, when I fell for somebody, when I had uh, an attraction to somebody, they became my obsession. So pretty much anything that could take me away, uh, I was, I was addicted to Mm -hmm. it. And, and that really, I, I tried to manage and control that didn't really have any tools as a teen. Fortunately, I had a couple of uh, mentors in my life at that time in sports, which were really helpful. Sports really kind of helped me get through a lot of things in, in my younger ages. Uh, but in my twenties, uh, I, I made a decision at, at some point to join a career to, uh, in law enforcement and it was almost as if it was a conscious decision for me to, because I'd had some, I had fallen in love with women. I wasn't really comfortable with my, my sexual orientation. Uh, and I'd fallen in love with some friends, teammates, and didn't work out. Uh, I wasn't, I wasn't prepared, nor were they prepared to really act on those, on those feelings. And I found myself in these obsessive behaviors and just, a lot of messiness, what I, what I consider to be really messy, uh, interactions when my heart was involved. So when I was making that decision to go into law enforcement, I wanted to just flip a switch to turn off my heart and just live in my head. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you can probably guess that maybe that didn't work. So Not well. usually, <laughs> <laughs> but I had a focus, you know, and I had something, a meaningful career ahead of me and felt really uh, fortunate to have, have gone into that career and didn't want anything to interfere with it. And I also had a security, security clearance and a background investigation that were part of me getting that job. So I really wanted to contain any of that, of what I perceived a messiness, whether it was with alcohol or relationships to the extent that I could. So you, you chose and, law enforcement because of its like kind of rigid boundaries where you had to behave in a certain way. It's like the, the rules of, of law enforcement are really clear, right? It's like you can't get DUIs. Yeah. <laughs> you can't be acting right. out. In fact, back then, I guess, that you couldn't even be 
uh, lesbian. Like you just had right. to live within really, and that and that helped you feel more in control of yourself. Was that Absolutely. part of the reason that you chose that? Absolutely. Wow. There was that service component yeah. as well. And I wanted to, feel good. you know, I needed something that was going to make me feel mm-hmm. good about myself. Mm-hmm. And it had lots of other bells and whistles sure. along with it. But I think that ability that I had to maintain this life of order and discipline was something that attracted me to that, that field. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I remember going through that first background investigation. And, and although there was part of me that wished I'd had some kind of um, physical or sexual experience with another woman prior to that, but was also relieved that I hadn't because it could have interfered with me getting that uh, clearance right. at that yeah. time. Because that was when? Like what year-ish? That was in the eight, eight, yeah. 80s. Yeah, that would have been a hard situation. You wouldn't have passed background check. That's that's exactly right. And I didn't want anything to interfere wow. with that because that was such an important goal to mm-hmm. me. You know, and those those external goals, mm-hmm. you know, I could set my sights on those external goals like that, um, you know, whether they were related to sports or career, uh, but didn't have any really emotional capacity to um, to to live an integrated uh-huh. life at that time. Okay. So my 20s were a mess. Mm-hmm. Sounds like it. Wow. <laughs> Where I was trying to really contain uh, myself. And I was coming mm-hmm. out uh, and I moved back to my hometown. I went to college in, in uh, Northern Virginia, uh, played soccer for that school and did an internship with the same agency that, that hired me. And I got to move back to my hometown, which I thought was a blessing, mm-hmm. but <laughs> it turned out to be a bit of a challenge. Not, yeah. uh, first coming mm-hmm. out, you know, that was, that was challenging. And um, having this career, you know, it was, it was suddenly what I had, had tried to avoid that, that mixing of my heart and, um, and my body, you know, that I had to, and, and my head, uh, that I was in this career and that I was trying to uh, contain those emotions are certainly the expressions mm-hmm. of it. And so I engaged in some pretty destructive behaviors mm-hmm. uh, that I, I would consider looking back on today. And, you know, as I was coming out, uh, was really, I was seeking those relationships with women who were unavailable uh, in, in some way, whether they didn't live in the area or they were in another relationship that was typically my uh uh, those were typically the the types of women I got. So they were in. safe. Uh, they were safe. Yeah, exactly. destructive. They were, they were but safe. Yeah. Right, right. Because I didn't have to fully mm-hmm. commit or build a life with them. I didn't. I didn't know that. I didn't mm-hmm. want that. I didn't understand that or have that kind of capacity uh, through mm-hmm. my twenties. So at about midway through my twenties, I got assigned. Uh, to an invest, a national investigation, a national sexual assault investigation, which very much motivated me in my career. And I, and even then as I was coming out and I felt like I had to just, uh, suppress that side of my life because I had this important work to do and I was going to be traveling. I ended up traveling all over the country, 
uh, primarily to interview sexual uh, victims of sexual assault on on the tailhook investigation, uh, as well as pilots who are who are accused of of sexually assaulting women at this convention. Mm-hmm. And so my personal life was a bit of a mess uh, at this time when I was assigned this this really critical case. Uh, and and so what I had to do, I I remember you know going into it feeling like I had to have that order and discipline that I couldn't drink um, because I couldn't predict what would happen when I drank. And I could just completely throw myself another addiction, you know, that the work addiction, I could throw myself into my work 24 seven. And I did that for a little over a year. Uh, There were some uh, moments in between sometimes with some misbehaviors, (laughs) I like to say in between some uh, indiscrepancies uh, during that year because I couldn't, fully control it. I was an addict. And, um, but part of what happened during that investigation was that, uh, I was able to be assigned. I got rewarded for my work on that case with a geographic to Seattle. Mm -hmm. I got to leave that environment that I had, um, so badly, um, uh, in my opinion, uh, disrupted, uh, in relationships that were, you know, hanging on a string because of uh, my betrayal, uh, various forms of betrayal of friends and relationships and so forth. I, I almost felt like I was going to get run out. of If I didn't move, I was gonna, going to get run out of town by the lesbian wow. community there. <clears throat> yes. So did you, so, did you wonder, why do I keep doing this? Did you wonder about that? Were you aware that... Well, I keep doing this same thing over and over again, uh, expecting different results, right? Like I'm going to fall in love. I'm going to fall, you know, find somebody and then like have a fantasy, I guess, of settle down, blah, blah, blah. Right. Um, were you wondering why do I keep doing this to myself and others? I just thought I was intrinsically flawed. Okay, so there's the bad seed thing. I'm a bad seed. I'm, I'm flawed. I'm a bad seed. But that must have you been know, baffling I'm, to you because here you were in this big, you know, investigation doing all this really important work. And then over here on the personal side, you know, you're wreaking havoc with, you know, other women, right? This is where you're doing your drinking. Um, and so it must have felt very bizarre for you to be in this really important job and then, you know, your life is falling apart. Yeah, I was, I felt like I was living a double well, life. Well, you, you kind of were, it sounds like. Kinda, yeah. Kind of uh-huh. was. Yeah. And I thought that maybe where I lived was the problem. Yeah, it's a geographic it problem, a- all right. <laughs> Yeah. So you got the then geographic I could, cure because they sent you to Seattle. I don't think I could have moved farther. You away. couldn't unless you, know, you moved I, to Japan or somewhere, right? That's right. Yeah, my uh, my parents were also going through a divorce at the time, so it was a perfect exit strategy mm-hmm. for me to move clear across the country and start a new right. life. And I expected that with that new life and the same mm-hmm. job. I was going to work for the same agency in, in the same role uh, that I, I expected to have new behaviors. Right. I thought that the uh, geographic cure. This was a total, yeah, total transformation. Mm-hmm. If I could just get away, 
I could just get away from all of these people who are alcoholics. There you go. All those people, those alcoholics, right? All those yes. people who drink. I don't think I used the term alcoholic. I probably said who drink a lot. Oh, right. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It wasn't really. Who, who drink too much. Right. Like that's. You know, I'm, I'm with, I'm with this crowd of people who drinks too much. It's not, it's not me. Mm-hmm. It's, uh, it's them. It's the people around me and it's the, the location because there's a lot of, uh, praise or a lot of attention in that town to happy hours and drinks, drinking and every town. Well, and don't <laughs> so, you think back, you know, in the eighties, uh, the only place you could really find other gay people were either bars or on sports fields for women, right? Yep. And those were my right. places. And so there was no way to socialize or find other people like you or me, as it turned out. But there was no other place except a bar, really, that you could socialize. Because you're not really socializing on a soccer field. You're playing soccer. So socialize, meeting people, dancing, doing all that. It's the only place. There was no other place. If you went to another place, <clears throat> you could find yourself in situations where you could be outed. I'm using air quotes for that, where people would say, oh, look, there she is. Let's tell her employer. Right? And you couldn't go places. So I think that was an important piece of that. Yeah, and I and as I moved to Seattle, just kind of like when I was going into law enforcement, I was not going to do some of the same things. Of course not. That I did in Syracuse. <laughs> mm-hmm. I was not going to play sports or hang out mm-hmm. at bars. I was going to have a life of culture. <laughs> I was culture. going to, I don't know, go to the <laughs> symphony, um, spend time in museums, mm-hmm. and I yeah, where you'd meet lots of lesbians, <laughs> right? <laughs> I mean, we do go, we do have culture, but that's not usually where you meet other lesbians because they're all just looking at art or being in a cultural situation. Right. So that's social. But when I, moved, <laughs> when I moved to Seattle, I was in a relationship with a woman who lived in Japan at mm-hmm. the time. So I thought I was safe, I was safe in that respect. Mm-hmm. But, um, that wasn't a deterrent from either women or bars um, because I got lonely, you know, work, work was only a certain number of hours a day, certain number of days of the week. And as much as I tried to throw myself into my investigations, it just wasn't sufficient Mm -hmm. uh, to sustain me. Uh, So I, uh, I started to, you know, go out to bars alone. And, um, you know, before I knew it, I was in an, in, I was in two relationships. Um, one in Seattle and, and one in Japan, and um, and that didn't didn't work so well mm-hmm. either. Um, but it was just this constant, you know. I one of the things that did happen when I moved to Seattle is ultimately when when I found that I was in that in those same uh, tendencies of going to bars, and I actually met somebody at a bar who played on a soccer team. I ended up joining a soccer team, and uh, that turned out to be a really great thing for me because I met some uh, women who are professionals, teachers, lawyers, uh, doctors who were part of this, this team. And they're, they didn't have the same obsession with drinking mm-hmm. as I did. It didn't take me long to figure that out that, uh-huh. uh, you know, they would have 
they would have events and parties from time to time, but they weren't, they didn't drink like I did. They didn't bring beer to every soccer meeting or soccer practice or anything like that. Mm-hmm. Um, so I could, uh, even from that group of who I felt were my peers, I stood out uh, with my consumption of alcohol. Like I was the one who always wanted more. Um, and, and that was true for a few years into my late twenties, uh, when a couple of those friends, uh, had the, um, courage and kindness to, to tell me the truth or to ask me or question my drinking, mm-hmm. my love of drinking. Hmm. Uh, and, uh, that's, you know, my mom had tried to do the same thing years before. And I, I, uh, threw out the lesbian card to, uh, Send her on another. Yeah, I bet trail. that worked. <laughs> that didn't work so well. <laughs> Me either. <laughs> Me either. That was not a deterrent no. to either. Uh, but you know, I I had, a, a, as you might guess, a, a sense that I was I was struggling with alcohol, my alcohol intake, and that when I drank alcohol, that that things happened, things that I didn't, you know, I was engaging in behaviors that uh, were embarrassing, that I was ashamed of. Um, that I was, you know, acting out again, acting out sexually in ways that, um, uh, were, were not according to my, to what I thought were my values. So I wasn't, I wasn't leading the life that I expected to lead in Seattle when I, when I moved to Seattle. So you, you had that conflict of values. This is what I think. This is what I believe. This is what I think is good behavior. And this is what keeps happening to me. So, you know, when we talk about addiction, we talk about loss of control. And it's not just loss of control over your drinking, because it sounds like that was one of the things that was happening. But it's loss of control over what I say and do. Right? And then the next day, now I realize what I say and do, I feel shame and guilt, pain, sad, self-recrimination. And so what do we do? Drink some more. <laughs> Bring in more chaos. Yeah. You know, it's yeah. like, oh, well, I got to get rid of this. This feels too bad. And, you know, after that first or second drink, and by then you've lost control again, then I feel better, but then I feel worse. Because at some point, it there's not enough booze, there's not enough drugs to make all of that go away, Right. And no matter, I couldn't find peace. No. I didn't have that, that inner peace that I understand and live, live with mm-hmm. today that I was, you know, I had, as I, as I mentioned about that childhood trauma, the, the, the beginning of my, the war I was having with myself. Mm-hmm. And that was, that was just perpetuated and magnified anytime I drank alcohol mm-hmm. because. I never knew what would happen. And sometimes I didn't, you know, when I, I would go into blackouts and, and wasn't certain about mm-hmm. what happened. That must have been horrifying. So it was horrifying. Mm-hmm. It was horrifying, particularly given my uh, my role as a special agent mm-hmm. with, the, with the Defense Department. Not good. No. Nope. Um, <laughs> you know, that I couldn't uh, contain those, those mm-hmm. behaviors. Like it was, I felt like I was kind of spinning out of control. So when those friends uh, asked me about my drinking and, and expressed some concern, it made me want to maybe do something about it. 
maybe. Mm-hmm. And I wasn't, I also recognized that alcohol was a, was a form of, it was, it was a bit of a coping mechanism. A bit. Sounds like was, a lot. Help me, get, <laughs> help me get through it. What I was getting through, I didn't really know because externally I seemed to be living a life of my sure. dreams by having this, this apartment on Capitol Hill in Seattle, the city I wanted to live in, and a beautiful brick building with hardwood floors, a career, friends. You know, I felt like externally I had it all, but there was something that was, was dying. And you didn't know what that something was. I did not know what it was. I just know that I would wake up in the middle of the night and feel that, that isolation, particularly when I was along, um, this desperation and, and Mm -hmm. fear, fear. I had a, uh, loaded service Mm -hmm. weapon really accessible to me. And did you contemplate suicide? Yes. Mm-hmm. And yes. how often do you think you did that? It's hard to say. Um, you know, and I would, uh, it, and it was times that in those, those moments of desperations and when I really hated myself for, for saying something or doing something that caused uh, that self-loathing, mm-hmm. that those were the times. And I, and I can't, I can't put a number on that. I just know that there was a point that that seemed like a viable option. To so me. once it seemed like yeah. a viable option, did, do you think consciously or subconsciously that it stayed a viable option for you? I think there was, there was a part of that that lingered. Mm-hmm. I think when I was conscious and I was in my, you know, super special agent role, that that was as far away as it could mm-hmm. be from me. But it was those, you know, the middle of the night, um, terrors that I would awake mm-hmm. to that that caused me to to consider that as a as a possibility. Do you think it was also, do you think on a say a scale of one to ten, where were you on the possibility of doing that? With ten meaning you've already done it. <laughs> yeah. I think I was six wow, or seven. That's high. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I was at a at a particular Point. I had I I was in a long distance relationship, uh, and that that ended, and I felt like I was spiraling out of mm-hmm. control. And so I know at that point, and, and that was just prior to uh, me not uh, quitting right. drinking. I mean, that was it was just before I got the help uh-huh. that I needed. Um, that I was I was doing the spiral out of control, mm-hmm. and. Um, and I kept, you know, part of my conflict was I, I didn't want to do anything about seeking help because I had this security. Yes. Clearance. And in this, I know this doesn't seem like uh, uh, an epiphany, but to me it was there. There was a day that I had this epiphany of, well, if I'm dead, my security clearance is irrelevant. True. Wow. That it, is it quite was. an epiphany. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So this little bit, it felt like this little life force in me uh, came to the surface. And that's when I got to that point where I was ready and willing to ask for help. I had been seeing, I had just started seeing a therapist at that Mm -hmm. time who was suggesting maybe alcohol was destructive for me. And I was like, no, I can't, I don't think I'm going to give that up. So I was still kind of experimenting with it, um, maybe tapering, but at the same time, emotionally, I didn't, I didn't know where to go with mm-hmm. that. And so 
Uh, but then when I got had that realization that uh, a security clearance was irrelevant if I was dead, that um, I sought help. Mm-hmm. I got I actually literally got down on my knees and uh, had a phone call from a friend I hadn't heard from in a while that just kind of started to uh, that was that was surprisingly about a friend of a friend's suicide wow. that really it, the timing of that uh, made me recognize that this was serious and that and I, don't, and I didn't admit this to that friend at the time, but that I knew that I needed to get some pretty um, uh, intense help. And did you go to treatment? Duh. I did go mm-hmm. to treatment. I, I shopped around for treatment and I wasn't really willing at that point to fully divulge my, uh, the extent of my drinking when I was interviewed for places like Rest mm-hmm. 12. Uh, they didn't, they didn't accept me because I, you know, I was, I was keeping up appearances mm-hmm. and not really sharing, uh, the, the depths of my, uh, despair and my drinking. And, uh, so ultimately I ended up going to, um, Sundown okay. Ranch. Mm-hmm. That's a good treatment facility. It was a good treatment mm-hmm. facility, and it was really good for me because I thought I was different. Of course. <laughs> I thought I was going to a resort. <laughs> hey, I've had that experience myself. An executive spa in my world. <laughs> I'm going to rest. I brought. I think I brought my tennis yeah. racket. You know, <laughs> yeah. And uh, it, was, it wasn't that no. at all. I... I when I arrived there, I remember getting assigned to somebody who was a strike away from her three strikes uh-huh. uh, for a prison sentence and, uh, or, you know, a lifetime in prison. And I, and I was like, wow, I, I really don't belong <laughs> here. I'm a, I'm a, they don't know who I am. And I put myself yeah. here. You know, I had this whole wow. perspective on, I, I checked myself in here. This isn't, this wasn't somebody requiring me to do right. this now. Yet I knew that my job <laughs> was contingent on it. And my job was at that time in my life, the most important thing mm-hmm. I had going. Isn't it? So I didn't want Yeah. Isn't it interesting that the first, per- here you are, big a- special agent, right? Getting uh, connected with a, <laughs> with a person that is on their third strike, <laughs> a criminal. <laughs> it's like, isn't that, I'm just saying that's so interesting that. It was. How was absolutely, to be. <laughs> and she probably helped you a lot, didn't she? She helped mm-hmm. me a lot. She yeah, me. my entire group helped yeah. me a lot in in terms of making me understand that I I truly belonged right. there. It wasn't a it wasn't a fluke that I was there, and that I needed the help that I got there. And I believe me, I tried to uh, uh, you know I thought I could run wherever I wanted. I didn't think I had to abide by their rules until I almost got kicked uh-huh. out of the facility. Right, that wouldn't have been good. No. Well, you know, I really appreciate your openness and willingness to share what what it was like for you to be an addict and what happened. And in our next uh, session, I would like for you to think about talking about your uh, the trauma, the the fuel that, you know, fueled this, you know, this destruction, what you call the despair you know, because you just said you didn't know what it was. So in our next session, I'd like you to do that. Okay, thank you. 
Thank you for listening to this episode of Healing Your Family Legacy here on the Experience of the Soul podcast channel. This channel is made possible because of listeners just like you. If you would like to support the channel with your tax-deductible contribution on an ongoing basis or through a one-time gift, head over to experienceofthesoul.com support. Healing Your Family Legacy is copyright 2022, Dr. Donna Bevanley, all rights reserved. Our theme music is composed by Dave Croft and used with permission. The Experience of the Soul podcast channel is a production of 818 Studios.